Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sailorville, and uh, glad you're here. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you, you can find the Gospel of Luke in the very first chapter, Luke chapter 1, if you would, please, as we begin our brand new Christmas series, The Songs of the Season. And as we do that, let's just, let's start by talking to God, shall we? Our Father, we love you and bless your name. and Thank you for this time that we can sing our praises to you, interact with one another, encourage one another. And God, bless your holy name. I pray, Lord, that the hearts in this room and those watching online would be like Mary's at the uh, announcement of the miracle of the incarnation and the virgin birth with hearts that are truly uh, uplifted to you and holy and very humble. I pray, Lord, that you would do a very special work in a few hearts in this room and again online who don't know you. Hearts are far from you. They might come into a relationship with you, we pray. And so we invite your presence and your power into this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 1, Travis Twitt, who is the country western singer, southern rock, bluegrass, whatever you want from him, uh, tells about in the early years when he was a lot younger, yeah, uh, he would be in, he'd be in sketchy places and he would be singing in these bars. And every once in a while, while he was singing, a bar brawl would break out. And he came up with this idea, and it became his standard way of dealing with bar, bar brawls. Say that five times fast. And I'm, I, Here's what he said. Just when things started getting out of hand, when bikers were reaching for their pool cues and rednecks were heading for their gun rack, I started playing Silent Night. It could have been the middle of July. I didn't care. As I played, grown men would stop everything and calm down. Sometimes they'd even start crying, all because I was playing Christmas carols. There's no other song that can tame an angry heart and bring differing people groups together like Christmas songs, right? I mean, I grew up uh, in a Roman Catholic home, and there are songs that I sung as a little boy, I will, I will never sing again. But at Christmas time, we sang all the same songs. I can still envision myself back as a little boy during midnight mass singing, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them. Never thought too much about that line, but I sang it with all my heart. I really did. And among the many prophetic names of our Lord Jesus, not the least of which is the one we cherish. He is the Prince of Peace, amen? Now, peace, on the other hand, is probably not what was going on in the heart of Mary when she was told by Gabriel, the angel, that she would be the temporal temple to the Messiah, the Son of God. I think it's probably more like shock and then humility and then certainly faith and then this magnifying worship that gave way to song, both to her God and to ours, a song of salvation and praise. 
And just to reacquaint you with the, with, before we look at her response, uh, her praise with the Latin version called Mary's Magnificat, uh, just to remind you, this is, this is the interaction she has with the, with the angel. And just pick it up at the very end of verse 28 where, where the angel says, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, and this is the this is the closest thing you're going to get to an explanation for the impossible, thus the virgin incarnation, the virgin conception of Christ in Mary. The Holy Spirit, Gabriel says, will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. You can say amen if you believe that. And Mary said, behold, I am your, literally your slave. This is the feminine version of slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. So Mary's response which is recorded here in song in verses 46 through 55. Again, the Latin version called the Magnificat from the third word in the the song, magnify. This response is deep and it's fervent and it's worship. And Mary, keep in mind, is still worshiping by faith. She is not holding the baby Jesus in her hands when she sings this song back to God. She, she's pregnant, and Jesus may be little more than in the zygote stage, for all we know. But Jesus is still eight to nine months away by way of being born into the world. And so Mary is praising God by faith, not by sight. And this is Mary's song, not Joseph's. It's Mary's. So rather than me read it, I have invited to the platform one of the most precious and passionate followers of Jesus I know. So Rachel Willie, come and read the scripture, would you please? And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let's thank Rachel for that. Thank you, Rachel. Excellently done. Powerfully read. And it's a powerful song. It's Mary's song. And I would submit to you that it's a heartfelt song. Was it not? Is it not? My soul magnifies. The word means to be enlarged. My soul is enlarged. My, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is classic parallelism, which the second, that's where the second line is basically an echo of the first. And we see this throughout the great song. This song is coming through Mary's lips, but it is originating in Mary's heart. And it is closely aligned, this song is closely aligned with the song of Hannah. If you're familiar with that song, back in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel, when she discovers that this barren woman is going to give birth to a son, that would be Samuel. And let's just, I want to reacquaint you with this because the parallels are so very powerful. And this is, she's in the temple, she's barren, she's crying out to God. Eli, the high priest, recognizes something strange is going on. I have the words up here for you right here. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put, your, put away your wine. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Do you know what Hannah was saying? Literally, the Hebrew, it's a play on words. The Hebrew indicates this. She was saying, I'm not drinking in. I'm pouring out. That's what she was saying. What Hannah was doing in anguish, Mary was doing in praise. And this is, this is just just gushing forth of praise. So, and every time I read this passage of scripture, I am reminded of a guy uh, that uh, was, uh, uh, was in the church that I first pastored. He was, his name was George Peterson. When I arrived there, I swore he was 114 years old. He was only 80. But this would pray. And whenever he would pray, he would pray scripture. I mean, literally, he would be like transfixed before God. And that's why I often asked him to pray. He would just be praying scripture from all over God's word and sewing it together beautifully. He was a total man of God, this 80-year-old man. And this is Mary, except she's not 80. She's probably 13 or 14 because women, Jewish women, got married when they became of age. So she's probably 13 or 14 years old. Remember that because scripture is literally coming out of her pores. 
Now, Mary wasn't, if you'll notice, in the, in the reading of the song itself, and thank you so much, Rachel, for doing so. It, she is not focused on anybody around her. She's focused on the one above her. It is pure, unadulterated worship. Now, we have, th- we have three services here, and uh, I usually attend, as you are, to, in, uh, with my wife in the first service, and then I sit in the crow's nest uh, back there, for the last two before I come up and preach. And uh, by the way, did you know that nearly everybody who really sings sits up front? Did you know that? I'm kidding. But, but you know, I, I do enjoy watching the second and third services from afar because I love to watch those who are caught up in praise, completely un- uninhibited, oblivious to those around you, especially when they're just songs of praise, right, to God, not necessarily the ones that are to one another we talked about a few weeks back. I just love watching these magnified souls extending their worship of God both in lip and, in, and with limb. And I'm not saying that you're less of anything if you're not demonstrative in your worship, but if God has wired you to be demonstrative, be demonstrative. Lift up your hands to God and worship him. He is worthy, Amen. In the book, The Valley of Vision, I just was reading this morning. I read from it every Sunday morning to get my own heart right with God. I read these words. Father, I confess that in religious exercise, the language of my lips and the feelings of my heart have not always agreed. Do yours? Does the language of your lips and the feelings of your heart. Agree? I'm here to say that in Mary's they did. Hers was a real heartfelt song. Is yours? It was also a holy song. Now we learned uh, in our study of Ephesians that if it, that the, the, the man or the woman that's filled with the life of God, the spirit of God, The results of that is that the truth of God just comes out. It just does. It just comes out. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Paul wrote, teaching and admonishing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks to him in his holy name. This is, it just comes out. Mary's words are filled with scripture. There are no less than 15 Old Testament references in this song, 15, from Genesis to Isaiah to 1 Samuel to other prophets, all along the lines of exalting the name of God himself. Look at verse 48. Mary Mary recognizes that God is mindful of her. For he has looked on the humble estate of his, his servant, his slave, He's mindful. Verse 54 says he remembers. God doesn't forget things. Did you know that? I mean, I forgot one letter and a password I was trying to get into the other day. I couldn't get in. God forgets nothing. And be thankful for that. He hasn't forgotten his promises to you and to me who know him. This this is an allusion to the the omniscience of God. He's the all-knowing God. She, she not only talks about God being mindful, but that he's mighty for her. Verse 49, for he who is mighty 
has done great things for me. Holy is his name. This speaks of the omnipotence of God. He is all-powerful after all, amen? Which is the reason why Gabriel answered Mary when she said, how can these things be? He gives a, a, a kind of explanation, and then he reminds her, with God, nothing is impossible. Because he's the omnipotent God, and she recognizes that. That God is mindful, that he's mighty, and that he's merciful to her. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She recognizes God's mercy upon her, and not just upon her, but upon ascending, succeeding generations. That's up to you and me. Aren't you glad? So you see here elements of God's omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence. The God who is there for her is the God who is here for you. Believe it. And that God is not just all of these, but that he is not only mindful, mighty, and merciful. He is the master over all things, including his enemies. Verse 51, he has shown strength. With his arm, he has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, which is the way he's always done it, by the way. Now, why would Mary pray like this? What kind of enemies would she have had? We don't really have any indication as we read through the Gospels of Mary having any personal enemies, but we know she did, and we don't have to speculate a whole lot. Remember, the Gospels, the focus is never on Mary. She's going to fade out pretty quickly. We do have a quick allusion to her here and there, and then in the book of Acts, she's with the 120. Godly woman, for sure. But the focus of the Gospels isn't on Mary. But in John chapter 8, Jesus is having one of his classic arguments with his enemies, and he is absolutely throwing them into a tizzy. They can't refute his logic. And what do they do when they can't refuse the impeccable logic of the Son of God? They say, you are the Son of God. Um, what can we do? I mean, you're the best. You're the greatest. You're so cool, Jesus. No, that's not what they say. In John 8, 41, they say, what? We weren't born of fornication. Now, where did that come from? And a couple of verses later, uh, uh, you're a Samaritan. Where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from all of the shame that had been heaped on all of the life of this precious woman. So don't wonder at all whether or not she experienced this from her enemies but in her prayer, she recognizes the sovereignty of God over all things. Amen? She sees it here. He's stronger than the enemies. They will never be one up on him. I have, uh, I've had four grandsons born in the last three months. One just last week. And I have two wishes for my grandsons, and I want to share them with you because they're heart, both very heartfelt. One is that they become followers of Jesus. And the other is that they wrestle. I mean, come on, it's the best sport there ever was. I mean, little boys love to wrestle, don't they? They love to wrestle. I mean, and when they, and here's, here's, my, here's my grandson, Benny, wrestling against his dad. 
And when he goes after, he goes after with every fiber of his 34 pounds of vim and vigor. And of course, his dad concedes the battle. The victory is to the little man. But haters of God, they're just like Benny. They think they have the power to overthrow the ways of God. But rest assured, God will bring down the mighty from their thrones and exalt those of humble estate. Amen? Because what was true then was true before then. And what was true then is true now. What was true then will always be true. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. And that's what the Bible says. And that's why we're told, again, through Mary's song in verse 53, that's why the rich will go away empty. And that doesn't mean that God has some, you know, issue with those who are wealthy. It's those who are rich in themselves. Those of you who seek after your own power, your own popularity, whatever it is on your own, you will go away empty. Some of you are empty now in your hearts. But Mary's prayer doesn't end there with all of these aspects of God's omniscience and omnipotence, his omnipresence, his great sovereignty, but it has a messianic element to it because she knows she's just been told that she is now a temporary temple. And so she says in verse 54, he has helped his servant Mary. Is that what it says? No, he's helped his servant Israel. She knows this is going way beyond her. She recognizes that this is a blessing beyond herself to Israel. By faith, she sees her blessing as blessing her people and the world. Now, growing up in our home, we, we sang the songs of the season, just like many of you do. What's your favorite Christmas song? You know, one of my absolute favorites is, has a, a haunting melody to it. But it's almost irresistible to me. And it's probably, no, there's no probably to it. It's the oldest Christmas song of all the Christmas songs. In fact, it's probably over 1,200 years old in its origin. Its historical origins go all the way back to the Gregorian chant. And uh, probably 8th or ninth century. And what would happen is that the monks would actually take this song and sing a verse from it every day for the final week leading up to Christmas, they would sing this song. It's a popular song. It really is, even in our own day. I mean, Chris Tomlin has a version of it. King and Country has a version of it. Enya has a version of it. Even Kelly Clarkson, the pop, the pop artists have a version of it. And you know what it is, don't you, many of you? Oh, come. Oh, come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel. You want to know where that song came historically? I already told you. You want to know where it came biblically? Right here. That song is based on Mary's prayer when she says he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly, lonely exile here. Some of you are still in exile until the Son of God appear. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee. 
O Israel. It's a song of anticipation. And I remember this anticipation. I remember singing the song over the Advent wreath, and my heart was filled with anticipation as I looked forward to Christmas cookies and presents and all that went around with the real meaning of Christmas. I mean, I really did have anticipation. But to be, gent- be, be, to be really truthful, it did create sort of a holy awe in our home, this song. And it's rooted in Scripture. Mary anticipates the coming of her great ransomer, just like you and I should, amen? He's coming again. Are you, are you, do you have this kind of anticipation for Jesus' return? And now, little children, John wrote, abide in him so that when he appears, we might have confidence and not be ashamed, literally the Greek says, before him at his appearing. Do you have that kind of anticipation? He's coming again. What a song. What a song, a heartfelt song, a holy song. And perhaps above all, it's a humble song. Mary reminds us all that we are all recipients of mercy, does she not? Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, doesn't matter, right? You get the sense, as Mary is singing this back to God, you get the sense that she's saying, what, what, me? And isn't that what you and I should think if we come to know Jesus? What, me? You chose me? Mary was a commoner and a poor one at that. But her humility is so powerful in this song. You can't miss it. Eight times, eight times in this song, she says, he has, he has, he has, he has, he has. Not I have, not about her, not all glory to me, but God has done all of this. The glory goes to God. And she begins right out of the chute. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, right? My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, right? And not just in God, but in God, my Savior. That's how humble this was. That's what Mary recognized. In 1986, I became a pastor, 28 years old. And I was a church of 30 people or so. And there was a guy there. I thought he was a single guy, but it wasn't single. His, he was married, had several kids, but his, his wife was Roman Catholic. And uh, the very first thing he wanted to do when I came to the church, knowing that I was a former Roman Catholic, was that he wanted to get the two of us together, all right? Put, put the cage up, you know, and... I thought, hey, bring it on. I mean, there's nobody more Roman Catholic than my mother, so let's, uh, I'll talk to your wife. Let me tell you something. She was a formidable opponent and proponent of Catholicism. She was way more Catholic than my mom. And we sort of locked horns on all kinds of things, including different views on definitions and terminology, even I can still remember saying, we talked about the perpetual virginity 
of, of Mary, which is a Catholic doctrine that believes Mary was always a virgin. She, she was a virgin here, which we certainly believe. That's the incarnation, the virgin birth, the miracle. We, we agree with that. The Bible certainly agrees with that. But you know, Roman Catholicism does teach that it's uh, something that she, she, she was always a virgin. I showed her from Scripture and Matthew 13 and Mark 6 that it's not even possible. He had all of these he had, Mary, he had all these brothers and sisters, and they were with their mother. I mean, it's really clear. And her reply was, cousins. I said, what? It didn't even make sense. But it's kind of where we ended up on that, back and forth. And then her name was Kathy. I took her here, and I showed her from Luke 147 that in her Magnificat, she said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, and there it is, my Savior. And I'll never forget it, because it was almost as if she'd prepared for everything but that. And she was just like temporarily stunned. And she looked at me, and she said, well, obviously she wasn't aware that she wasn't a sinner because Catholic doctrine believes in what is called the Immaculate Conception, that Mary herself was born without sin, which, again, is not possible, or it would be possible if God made it possible, but the Bible doesn't indicate that. Well, she must not have been aware. I said, not aware? This woman had Scripture pouring out of her. She was aware. And she was aware that she needed a Savior. And by the way, only sinners like you and me and Mary and everyone else but Jesus who became human need a Savior. Amen? Tradition sadly would rule over the Scripture in that moment for her. We never talked about it again. But Mary says, from now on all generations... Verse 48, will call me blessed. And indeed we do. Not the blesser, but the blessed, just as we are, right? Mary is one of the greatest examples of humility found anywhere in Scripture. And her greatest demonstration of humility was that in spite of perhaps the greatest honor bestowed upon a human being, to become the temporary temple of the Son of God himself. In spite of all of that, she refers to herself as a slave in need of a Savior. How do you refer to yourself? This is true humility. Do you have that kind of a heart? I think it was Augustine who said that Mary had, had Jesus in her heart long before she had him in her womb. And every year, I quote this little poem. Though Christ in Bethlehem a thousand times be born, if he's not born in you, your life is still forlorn. Oh, would your heart 
but be a manger for his birth. Once more would God then come with peace upon the earth. And therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Do you need a Savior? Yes, you do. Do you have a Savior? Yes, you do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for you and rose again, and you will have eternal life. And may your song in this season and the songs you sing, like that of Mary, be heartfelt, holy, and humble. Let's pray. Our Father, as we prepare for the Lord's table and conclusion of our time here, we want to thank you for the songs of the season. We thank you for this beautiful song from your servant, Mary, for the heartfeltness of it all, for the holiness of it all, and for the humility of it all. And may we mirror this amazing servant and all of her humility. I pray, dear God, as we go to the Lord's table, that we would be mindful of what all of this was about, to bring your son into this world, the perfect son of God, to live the perfect life, and to die a horrible death on our behalf so that we, like Mary, might recognize ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. I pray for those in this room who have never placed their faith in Jesus. They came in empty, and if they don't do something about it, they're going to go from here empty. If that's you, dear friend, right now, And from your heart, acknowledge your sin. Seek forgiveness. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. For those of us who know you, Lord, may we go to the Lord's table, examining ourselves and being committed to songs. Heartfelt, holy, and humble. We pray these things in Jesus' name.